anyone that studies happiness uh, seriously would, will tell you that social interaction uh, is really important for uh, one's well-being. And so if these experiences tend to provide more sort of fodder for social interaction, as our work suggests, that can be part of why we tend to get more satisfaction from them and we can continue to do so even after the experience has ended. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Hello, and welcome back to the Most Hated F-word podcast. I am your host, Sean Maslick. I am pleased you're here for another fascinating conversation. For the new listeners, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy you're joining us. For all those returning listeners, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, today, what a fascinating conversation. It was a fun one as well. Today, I have Dr. Amit Kumar on the podcast. He's an assistant professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Texas. Dr. Kumar's research specifically focuses on do experiences provide us more enduring happiness than material possessions? Basically, his research helps us understand how we can better spend our money so we can have more enduring satisfaction and well-being in our lives. And let me give you a hint. It's not materials. And while it might be more nuanced than just saying it's not materials, you will see the depth of Dr. Kumar's research and understanding of this topic of really why experiences and experiential consumption really can help us have more moment-to-moment feelings of happiness, more anticipatory moments of happiness, and more remembering moments of happiness. I really like this part where he talks about the three different levels of happiness that experiences can provide over material purchases. And of course, this is not saying that you shouldn't and can't spend money on material purchases. The fact is we need tables and chairs and etc. Rather, his research gives us insights on how we can perhaps alter our spending habits to experience more of this enduring satisfaction. You'll hear us talk about so many interesting things, the different types of happiness, how comparing experiences versus material purchases, the power of waiting, how our experience actually form part of ourself, the way we identify. We talk about regrets and their link towards experiential and material purchases, the impact experiential purchases have on our levels of gratitude and our overall view of society as a whole. It's fascinating. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. If you haven't had a chance, I would love it if you could just head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. And now, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Kumar.
Amit, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. As our listeners have come to hear, we have really been exploring the intersection of money and happiness and really how to spend our dollars, if possible, to find a little bit more happiness in our lives. So when I came across your research, I thought you would be a wonderful guest for the show. And here we are. So thank you. (laughs) We'll see if I live up to your expectations, (laughs) I suppose. Well, my expectations are to have a good conversation. So before we get into your research, from your online presence, I got the feeling that you enjoy spending your time and perhaps money on music and perhaps even on the late great Prince. So before we get into the scientific papers, what is it about music that brings you joy? Uh, I really do enjoy listening to, to live music, especially going to concerts. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, which is an amazing music city. And so there's lots of opportunities to, uh, to, to do that. And it's a nice way to spend time with other people. I feel like I have lots of stories about concerts that I've uh, been to, which, as we'll get to, is one of the reasons for why people might like doing uh, things like that. Use Prince as an example. So I'll share a Prince story um, shortly before he died. He went on a tour that was called the Hit and Run Tour, where he was announcing shows days before before he played them. I was living in upstate New York at the time. I know you're in Canada, which is, you're in a part of Canada that's not very close to upstate New York, but it turns out that Toronto was about four hours from where I was living, and he announced a show in Toronto. I decided to get tickets, uh, went to a kind of spur of the moment decision that ended up being an amazing show. And obviously, nobody knew that he was gonna pass away. So suddenly, and so it was this incredible opportunity that I got to see Prince in live in concert doing his amazing thing before that opportunity went away. It certainly is one example of an enjoyable activity that that folks could be engaging in. Prince came to Edmonton. And when you speak about experiences, my dad took all three of his boys to go see Prince because he thought it was something that we just had to do. And it's a huge memory of mine too. Perhaps it was a similar tour. I was blown away actually, because you, you know, I, I wouldn't have considered myself a super fan necessarily, but what, if you actually, if, if anyone who's listening was lucky enough to actually see him perform live, he's an amazing um, performer and band leader or was and I feel like I, I didn't fully appreciate that until I actually had the chance to see him perform. You know what? I didn't want to go because I thought I was busy. And I'm glad I did because I had <laughs> the same experience as you did. <laughs> we, we regret things that we didn't do. Uh, and so maybe it's a good idea that you uh, did go ahead and, and go to that show. <laughs> yeah. So this Prince conversation, I want to jump off to so many different parts of your research because there's so many applications here. My mind's racing that you didn't even get to anticipate this concert because it was only two days before. So I kind of want to go into the time frames of how we can enjoy an experience, but I'm going to hold off. And I just want to take a step backwards because I think to have this conversation, it's important to get a couple key things defined or discussed. So this conversation is around how do we integrate money and happiness? How can we use our money to find more happiness in our lives? While this might seem like a straightforward question or something that we all know, I think the reality is when it comes to happiness, we lack this absolute definition, probably for good reason. And it's kind of murky. What is happiness? So 
Could you speak from your choice, whether personal perspective or from the literature of what is happiness? It's a complicated question. It is an important one to talk about. And the way that I've thought about it, at least as a scientific researcher, is that even though it's a complicated concept that actually does have multiple meanings, you can make a sort of headway in trying to figure out what actually does make people happier. I think one of the sort of distinctions that makes happiness such a complicated term in that people are defining it in multiple ways is that sometimes people distinguish between uh, what's called anticipatory utility, which you were just uh, referring to, how happy you feel as you're looking forward to something, sort of in prospect. Um, so that's anticipatory utility, experienced utility, how happy you're feeling in the moment, uh, in the here and now as you're uh, experiencing something. And then remembered or recalled utility, sort of when you're looking back on on something. And so we might feel differently across those different types of satisfaction. We might feel similarly. And so one thing that I've tried to do in my research and some of the work that we'll talk about today is, well, what if you look at all of those different distinctions? Are the recommendations that might follow from them similar? Uh, and if so, that's probably a useful piece of advice for people to know about. There might be interesting differences between them as well. I think the other thing is that people you can let people define happiness for themselves. And so in the types of studies that we often do, we're basically asking people how happy they feel. Sometimes we ask them about specific types of happiness, but people are probably giving us some insight into how they're feeling. And so some people might think about happiness one way and other people might think about happiness another way. But if you're simply asking people how happy they are, they're gonna be reporting something that's positive uh, about their experience. And I think we can get some insight from, from those reports of their happiness. And as you're saying, like a lot of this, not a lot, it, it's reported. And can you just touch on the difference in terms of our evaluative happiness and the moment-to-moment -moment happiness? There's been research done on that where there are sometimes distinctions um, between these types of happiness. So evaluative happiness is reflecting on how we think about our lives, whereas experienced happiness is the sort of moods, the emotions that we're feeling as we're living our lives in the midst of our lives. So you can ask people in the moment, how are you feeling right now? Or you can ask them, think about your life and reflect on that a little bit and tell us how happy you feel overall. Both of those are reasonable ways to think about happiness. I think there are interesting distinctions between them. Other researchers would certainly talk about cases in which people might report that one thing made them happy in retrospect, but maybe didn't make them that happy in the moment or something like that. For the topic that we're talking about today, the sort of the satisfaction that people derive from the money they spend, we actually find sort of similar responses um, across in the moment ratings of happiness and evaluations where people are looking back on purchases, for instance. That's interesting is that I hear you saying that the results tend to be similar, whether you're reflecting or in the moment. And I've had people say to me that, well, I can understand how an experience similar to these different elements of an experience, but they speak about the remembering. Like, I can understand how the remembering provides more happiness than a moment-to-moment -moment or material purchase. But then they, people have asked me, they're like, well, when I buy this X thing, it really makes me happy in the moment. What did you guys learn about in your research the difference between the moment-to-moment -moment happiness um, when you compare material purchases versus experiences? 
Yeah, so I think just to back up a little bit, I think the, the big takeaway from this sort of body of work is that people tend to derive more satisfaction from what we call experiential purchases. So these would be like trips to places or meals out or tickets to performances like concerts or sporting events, experiences like that, than they do from material purchases, possessions like clothing and jewelry and furniture and electronic gadgets and, and things like that. And uh, the overall conclusion across lots and lots of different studies that we've conducted is that this value that people get from consuming experiences rather than material goods extends across a pretty broad time course. So as you were suggesting, there's lots of evidence that we've collected, lots of data that we've collected suggesting that people are happier when they're later asked to sort of reflect on the trips that they've taken and the events that they've attended and the meals that they've eaten. Then when they reflect on significant material things that they've purchased, we do find interesting differences in how people feel in anticipation of purchases as well, as you were uh, sort of alluding to. And we find a very similar result when we're looking at in-the-moment ratings of, of happiness. So I guess what I'd say is that over several years of, of research on sort of how people spend their money, the earliest research was kind of about how people derive more happiness from their experiences than their possessions in retrospect. It turns out that's in part because that experiential consumption is more likely to live on in what we talk about with other people, um, some of the storytelling that you might have been talking about there. After that sort of initial research, we then found evidence that experiential purchases can be more rewarding in anticipation as well. So looking forward to experiences tends to be more pleasurable and more exciting and, and less tinged with feelings of impatience than looking forward to material goods that we're planning uh, on buying. But in even more recent research, uh, we sort of discovered that experiences tend to advance well-being more than um, possessions, not just in prospect and in recall, but also in the here and now of consuming a purchase. And so I'm happy to talk about the types of experiments that we've done for all of those different time periods, all those different ways to think about happiness. But ultimately, the conclusion that our data suggests is very similar, irrespective of uh, which type of happiness you might be focused on. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. Your research solves, well, provides valid evidence research on this idea of how I should send, spend that excess money. And I think that's really interesting how you, the last part, you said how it advance our well-being. A lot of times on this podcast, we talk about how perhaps this relationship with money that we have is all about to use your words there, advancing our well-being and not just trying to accumulate as much in our bank account. But yet it seems like we have this pull or this societal pressure to buy the next thing or buy a bigger house than our neighbors. I know your research has talked about comparison. So we understand that if I have a car and my neighbor's car is better, I can compare my car and that, that material purchase. It's easy to compare material purchases. Do we as humans start to compare our experiences as well? So for example, if someone doesn't have a, or they decide they don't have enough money to go on a Mexican vacation and go camping, but yet the neighbor goes onto this elaborate Mexican vacation, aren't we still comparing our experiences? Sure, people make comparisons with other people, these social comparisons across various aspects of their lives. I think what's important to keep in mind though is 
the relative difference. Uh, so in all of these studies, the interesting result isn't just are people comparing or not, but what do those comparisons feel like for experiential purchases relative to what those uh, comparisons feel like for material purchases? In fact, what the comparisons look like psychologically is part of the reason for why people actually derive uh, more enjoyment or satisfaction from their experiences. So compared, at least compared to material purchases, experiential purchases are kind of less susceptible to problematic comparisons. So social comparison really can be an important facet of happiness. And so I think it's important as we're going through our lives to think about, well, how might we minimize the potentially deflating comparisons to which we might be exposed, as you were suggesting, you know, we, when we're making those comparisons, sometimes we feel negative. We're often bothered when we find out that someone, that our neighbor has a nicer TV than we do or a fancier wardrobe than our own. We can be annoyed when we find out that someone who has the same gadget that we had paid less for it than we did. It turns out those sorts of destructive comparisons are actually less common and less painful for purchases like uh, trips to Mexico or, or meals out. So at least what some research suggests is that even if you find out that someone might have had a slightly better vacation than you had yourself, it's not like you would want to trade your trip to Mexico for theirs. So your trip is uniquely yours. You wouldn't want a different one. You want your hole-in-the-wall restaurants, even if it wasn't their Michelin star restaurants, with all of their sort of unique idiosyncrasies. So in other words, one way to think about that is relative to material purchases, at least, experiential purchases tend to be more likely to be evaluated on their own terms rather than relative to the purchases that other people have made. I really appreciate that, that answer. And yeah, I guess as you experience your experience, like you, you alluded to, we rarely want to actually trade in the experiences as compared or relative to this material good. All this conversation, especially around the music, it makes me think of this one experience that I had with my family when I think about this anticipatory experience and remembering elements of spending money on an experience. My family really enjoys Bruce Springsteen. And he was playing in New Orleans one year at the Jazz Fest, I think 2014. And our whole family went down. This is almost 10 years ago when I'm talking about it. And I recall just the anticipation of going and then being there. And despite we had to sit in the hot New Orleans sun for eight hours to hold our spots, we got to experience this wonderful concert and the remembering just keeps living on and on. I bring that up because... Again, talking about this advancing our well-being, it really seems like spending our money on experiences have, has this enduring satisfaction. And you speak about that in your papers. Can you touch on, I know we've touched on it, but can you specifically talk about why our experiences have this sense of enduring satisfaction versus material purchases? First, I'll say I grew up in New Jersey, so I appreciate any time uh, someone uh, tells a Bruce Springsteen story, and I'm glad that, uh, <laughs> that you got so much out of uh, that concert with your family. It's also, I think, important that it was with your family. You were with other people, and that social connection can be really important for happiness. So I guess at least two things to talk about from that anecdote. You talked about waiting for Bruce Springsteen and, and what that anticipation feels like. I think waiting is a 
interesting phenomenon to study because sometimes waiting feels bad. We've all experienced like not wanting to wait very much. And sometimes waiting feels good. And it turns out our research suggests that when it comes to material possessions, waiting tends to feel more like impatience (laughs) or anxiety or frustration. Like you want that thing as quickly as possible. That's why we choose to have two-day shipping when we buy things online, for instance. Um, but with respect for, with respect to experiential purchases, like uh, your trip to Jazz Fest uh, in New Orleans, which I've actually also gone to uh, as well, waiting can be a positive state. We look, kind of look forward to what's to come with excitement uh, rather than impatience. It's delightful. You can think about how is Bruce going to open up the set? What's he going to close with? What's the encore going to look like? You can have conversations with other people about this upcoming experience. And so that's part of why that period tends to feel more positive. And similarly, the period afterwards, one way to think about this is even though that Jazz Fest was in 2014 or whenever, whatever year it, it actually was, you're deriving some value from it right now. You're sharing your story about the concert that you went to. And indeed, one of the reasons that people seem to derive this more enduring satisfaction from their experiences than their material goods is that experiences are more likely to be talked about with other people. They make for better story material. They're more likely to be discussed with others. Anyone that studies happiness uh, seriously will tell you that social interaction uh, is really important for uh, one's well-being. And so if these experiences tend to provide more sort of fodder for social interaction, as our work suggests, that can be part of why we tend to get more satisfaction from them. And we can continue to do so even after the experience has ended. Yeah, I noticed a lot of your work talks about this social aspect of experiences and how that really helps to cultivate feelings of more happiness in our lives. And you're making me think of all the online chat boards just for Bruce Springsteen himself. He's on another world tour. And I guess that's an example of how people like to really soak up the experience that they're going to go online with a, usually anonymous names and chat with random people around the world about their experience. Yeah, and I think that sociality works across multiple levels. Um, so even just when you're engaging in the experiences will probably be more social than your material goods, like more social in nature. That is, when we do things, we often do them with others. Um, people can go to New Orleans by themselves, but they're usually going with other people. And so to the extent that our social relationships are being promoted, that's something that's, that's likely to lead to happiness. But then even as we've been discussing, even beyond the sociality of the experience itself, if you're talking about these experiences, that kind of allows them to live on in our memories and in our stories, and that can provide us satisfaction. Sometimes people can think of experiences as fleeting. Uh, Bruce Springsteen said, He plays longer than most, but maybe it's 90 minutes or maybe it's three hours, but still that's three hours. And yet you're spending a lot of your time afterwards interacting with other people about those experiences. And those subsequent interactions are also contributing to your happiness. This turned into Bruce Springsteen podcast, but he's coming to Edmonton and I was talking to a friend and he's like, oh, it's like $250 to go. 
And I feel fortunate that we're both in a position to be able to buy a ticket at that price, realizing not everyone is. But I said to him, like, think about the amount of things like tape measures and better drills that you've spent over $250 on that you probably don't even know that are buried in your garage somewhere. <laughs> this experience is going to be unlike any other. And Bruce Springsteen or any other experience you can plot in there. It's interesting how our minds go towards like, ooh, this is lavish, spending 250 or whatever it is on the said experience. But yet we're so familiar or comfortable with spending $250 on some household material purchase that we might see once in our lives. Why is it our brains sometimes consider this irresponsible maybe or reckless that I'm spending this much money on a, a concert ticket or an experience when there's other things to be bought? I mean, I think what you're highlighting is the fact that we have to make trade-offs when we're deciding how to spend our money. And a financial investment can be a difficult decision um, because some folks might be uh, more or less well-off than others, but we all have some limits to the amount of money that we can spend. And any money that we're spending on one thing is something that money that we wouldn't be able to spend on another thing. And so... I think the inspiration for a lot of this research is might there be ways in which we can actually spend our money um, that might make us happier because we might be spending our money in ways that aren't making us happier. And so I think one of the reasons to actually answer your question, I think one of the reasons that people think that material goods, these possessions might be a better way to spend money sometimes is that they kind of last. They continue to exist in the physical world. You buy the drill you've been hoping to get for a long time. You get to keep it in your garage. You have it for more than the couple of hours that you spent listening to and watching Bruce Springsteen. The problem is that even though that's true in a physical sense, it's not always true in a psychological sense. So yes, the drill continues to exist and you get to keep it in your garage, but it might just be sitting in your garage to the point that you don't even notice it anymore, or you forget about it, or there's some other drill that seems exciting to you now and you wish you had that one instead of the old uh, one that's collecting dust in your garage. And so psychologically, we habituate or adapt to these material goods to the point that they might not be continuing to provide us with value. Whereas, as we were talking about before, the value that you get from experiences tends to be a bit more enduring. It doesn't exist in the physical world anymore. It's not tangible, but you can still talk about your experiences. You can still derive satisfaction from conversations that you have about them. And as I said that, I I hope it didn't come across like I was this very unaware individual that, oh, I can spend my money on tickets and not drills that I don't have trade-offs. And I certainly do have trade-offs. You really said something that I was trying to articulate is that perhaps we're spending money on things that don't actually bring us happiness that we don't have to spend anymore. And I think that's important. And I really want to I emphasize this idea that from your research, that experiential consumption really has that ability to have that enduring satisfaction and not adapt like the material purchases. And I think that really helps us when we think about what kind of things or experiences we want to spend our money on, because I think we all have these regrets that I wish I did this or I wish I did that. 
in your papers, you talk about regrets between experiential purchases and material purchases. Can you speak to the work that you've done or the observations you've seen when it comes to regrets in our expenditures? Yeah, so there is some research uh, that exists on different types of regrets. Um, so one of the, among other distinctions, uh, one of the uh, key distinctions in the, the sort of scientific literature on regret is between regrets of action and regrets of inaction. So there are some things that we do that we wish we hadn't done. Those are regrets of actions. And there are some things that we didn't do that we wish we had done. Those are regrets of inaction. And the patterns of regrets that people exhibit tend to be different across these different types of purchases. So for material purchases, people tend to, they often have regrets of action. You can think of this as sort of being buyer's remorse. I bought this thing that I thought was going to provide me with some satisfaction, but now I kind of wish I hadn't bought that thing. That's the type of regret that people often feel with material items. For experiential purchases, there's often regrets of inaction, things that you could have done and you wish you had done uh, and you didn't do. So if I had chosen, I could have said, Toronto, that's a different country. I need to bring my uh, passport. Uh, It's a four-hour drive. It's in a couple of days. Do I really have the time to do this? It was relatively expensive. Is this worth the money? I could have easily said, nah, maybe I'll just skip this one. I'll pass up this opportunity and do something else instead or spend my money on something else that I need or something like that. Um, and surely, uh, you know, when Prince sadly passed away, maybe I would have said, oh, I wish I had taken advantage of that opportunity when I had the chance. I, there was one shot I had to see Prince uh, while he was still around. And if I hadn't taken it, I probably would have experienced some regret about that inaction on my part. That's really interesting. And I think we all can think about (laughs) in our own lives, examples of both of those buyer's remorse and regrets on things or experiences that we didn't do. Another interesting part through your research I was really interested in was how our spending of money, whether on experiences or material things, impacts our identity or a sense of self. Can you touch on this? This, again, gets what are sometimes referred to as the psychological mechanisms or the explanations for these effects. So, of course, the key result is that people seem to derive, as we've been saying, more enduring satisfaction from their experiential purchases than their material purchases. But it's useful to understand why that's the case. What is it about experiences that makes them more satisfying than experiences? Uh, And so we talked, for instance, about their social value. We talked about how they tend to be less subject to what you might think of as depressing social comparisons. Yet another reason is that experiences tend to be more reflective of one's identity or sense of self. So our material goods don't make up who we think we are as much as our experiences do. In a sense, we're sort of the sum total of our experiences. You know, if you were to write your autobiography, you would think about the experiences that you've had in your life, and that would make up your story. That's who Sean is. Uh, and so compared to expenditures on material possessions, investing in experiences tends to be the sort of investment that also contributes to who we are. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, is there a point where it gets, I'll say, murky 
when a material purchase could be construed or interpreted as an experience, something that's popping in my head is, this is not me, but say I really valued interior design or craftsmanship. And I don't know, I, I buy this very expensive couch because it's this era and this designer. See, I don't know much, much about coaches, but say that I really valued having a nice couch because I like to host, which is an experience. Does this start to cross lines when people start to think, well, I like to host a lot. So I want to get a couch that really shows that I like this era of design. So I'm going to buy this expensive couch. Yeah. So I, there certainly is a fuzzy boundary. Like things don't come labeled as experience, <laughs> experiential purchases or material purchases. <laughs> but this can actually be a, a useful thing if you're thinking about how you might advance your own happiness. Although I think as you're maybe suggesting there's some potential risks involved in the strategy too. And so I think the useful part is if there are ways for people to derive more satisfaction from their material items, then this research suggests some of those ways. If you think about them in more experiential terms, you might actually derive more value from them. Maybe you'd actually talk to other people about them more. And so you'd engage in these discussions or these social interactions. An example would be like some, there, there are certainly, when you think about a bicycle or something like that, that is a material thing, of course. And it does, my bicycle does live in my garage with other, with the drill that I also own that's also in my garage. And if I think about that bicycle in terms of its technical specifications, its weight and how nice it is and how much how it compares to other people's bicycles and things like that. It's actually not very satisfying. It's a used bike that I bought for not very much money. It's very old and has some rust on it. And so that's something that if I think about it in those material terms, might actually not be something that provides me with much value. But if I think about it in terms of its experiential qualities, the bike rides that I've gone on, um, the time in the park, for instance, or the uh, new trail that was built near my home um, and who I was with and the conversations I had while I was riding my bike, thinking about the experiences that I've had with it, then I might actually derive more value from it. That said, I think one needs to be careful about how broadly you, you take this advice. I'm suggesting it because I do think it is a real recommendation for people that try to think about the experiential aspects, even of your material goods. But you can kind of delude yourself if you think that I'm buying this couch because I, I like to host. And then you end up spending most of that time on that couch by yourself watching TV on your own and not really spending time with other people. So if you actually did create a a theater experience and hosted a weekly movie night or something like that, uh, then Sure, that couch might provide you with satisfaction in the way that lots of experiences would. But if you're saying that to convince yourself to buy it, and then all of a sudden it's more about how the couch fits in with the rest of your furniture and the rest of the stuff in the room and, you know, how it's from this era, which matches the uh, vase uh, also from that era in the same room, then all of a sudden you're back in the realm of material goods rather than the experiences that couch might have provided. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it's back in that comparison 
lens that the materials were. I, I believe I may have seen a picture of this bicycle that you spoke of on your website. You may have got a new one since that photo, but I think it was said when you were 28, you have a photo of yourself on a bicycle. <laughs> that actually was not the bicycle. Uh, yeah, I did not learn how to ride a bike when I was a kid. And so I did learn how to ride a bike as I was doing some of this research that we've been talking about. And so that was somebody else's bike that I was borrowing when I was learning how to ride it. And then shortly after that, I did buy the used bike that I was referring to uh, earlier. And it's one of the most fun ways that I spend my time. So it's definitely a material item that affords experiences that I, I enjoy quite a bit. As I was preparing for this and reading your research, I, I couldn't help but think about bicycles because I, I really enjoy cycling. And in fact, a bunch of us neighborhood fathers here, we have busy lives with the kids and work. We, we head out quite frequently for cycling rides in the morning. And the way you said, if we think about some of these material things in a more experienced perspective with social interactions, I just think about these bike rides where we're outside, we're getting exercise, there's social interaction, there's, there's at times really good conversations many times. So a lot of factors that hit on the elements of what creates happiness or well-being. So I think that what you were talking about at the end is there's this limit of how we can convince ourselves that a material possession is facilitating that experience I was at a bike race this weekend, uh, a gravel bike race. So on gravel, a long race. And my bike had some issues before the race. And this guy was driving up on his like $15,000 bike, riding up, looking at everyone's bikes. And he's like, oh, I'm just checking out everyone's bikes. I thought, oh, that's weird. And um, he's like, oh, you're going to ride on that thing? I don't have a very expensive bike. And I was like, yeah, if I can get it fixed. Luckily, this guy could fix bikes. Then he's like, oh, well, good luck. It's a tough race out there on that bike. And I thought, geez, leave my bike alone. But there was a big hill halfway through the race and I ended up passing him on the hill. And it made me feel good that I didn't have to have a $10,000 bike to pass him on the hill. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know why I'm telling my <laughs> own stories, but I guess it, it made me think of there's a limit to the material thing. We don't need the biggest material purchase to facilitate that experience. Yeah, I think there's a, at least two points that I'd make about that story or the, that it makes me think about in terms of sort of the, at least the scientific work that's been done. One is that price is not the explanation for these effects. And certainly people, there are fancy, expensive restaurants that we can go to that provide us with lots of value. And there's hole in the walls that we've discovered that also provide us with a lot of value. And so price doesn't necessarily predict the satisfaction that we'll drive, derive from experiences and it's not the explanation for these results. So it would be unfair if our comparisons were kind of like a trip to Mexico versus a drill or something like that because they cost very different amounts of money. But it turns out that even when you account for potential differences in price, these results still are robust to that kind of explanation. But I think your story also gets at why you know, psychologists explore these mechanisms that we were talking about earlier um, to get at the underlying reasons for why an effect exists. That is, those explanations, I think, provide some insight into how we might derive more value from even the material things that we've bought. So these mechanisms that we talked about, um, these explanations, they can work with each other. Sometimes they can even be mutually reinforcing. For instance, we were talking about how 
folks tend to have conversations with others more about when it comes to their experiences. But we also tend to talk to others more about purchases that reflect our sense of identity. And when we do that, they might actually become even larger parts of our identity. You can try to, it's a difficult thing to do, I think, and people might not always do it super well. But once you understand some of those explanations, what causes this difference in satisfaction or happiness, that speaks to how to get the most out of our purchase. We Basically, we want to try to maximize the kinds of things that are going to lead to us getting more happiness. If we think about our purchases in terms of how they contribute to our sense of ourself, if we think about how this purchase might foster our social relationships and promote conversation, if we're amping up the extent to which our purchases do that, that's likely to increase the satisfaction uh, that they bring. Your bicycle, if you simply think about it in terms of how nice it is compared to other people's bikes, you might end up feeling a little disappointed. But if you think about your identity as a cyclist and the other fathers around town that you uh, ride with, then all of a sudden your bicycle ends up being something that seems to be providing you with a lot of satisfaction. Great, great explanation. And I would, ex- I would imagine then it would reduce the buyer's remorse we talked about earlier if I'm really linking it to what I value or my identity when I make these material purchases. I would assume that this buyer remorse would be eliminated or reduced. Uh, it could. I think that's probably something that needs to be studied a little bit more carefully. I don't think that's been studied in the in the context of regret, but certainly some of these suggestions would at least combat sort of the hedonic adaptation or the habituation that we were talking about. Your bike's not sitting in your garage collecting dust if you are, in fact, going on rides with your friends pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. This is making me think of your your work in and around feelings of gratitude when it comes with experiences, purchases, like expending our money on experiences versus material. Can you touch on what you've discovered? We've looked at other consequences of buying experiences rather than things that kind of move beyond feelings of satisfaction. Um, and so one that we examine has to do with these feelings of gratitude. It turns out that kind of reflecting on our experiential purchases inspires more gratitude than reflecting on our material purchases. So we're kind of more grateful for um, the trips that we've taken and uh, the performances we've been to than we are for what we have. There's all sorts of studies that we've done on this uh, where we sometimes we ask people to respond to measures about how they feel, like in, in lots of the other studies that we've talked about, but in this case, asking about gratitude specifically. We also found evidence for this kind of in what you might think of as a more naturalistic setting, so not in the laboratory experiment. So for instance, we can look at, we've looked at consumer reviews. So people leave reviews on websites and they leave reviews for different types of purchases. So there are some websites that where customers' comments are about experiential pursuits. So we can think of Yelp or TripAdvisor or something like that. There's other websites like Amazon, for example, that are geared towards material consumption. And when you look at the text of people's reviews, you find more spontaneous mentions of feeling grateful in reviews about experiences than reviews um, about possessions. So that's kind of one interesting result. I I think the other useful thing to to talk about is, well, why why are we talking about gratitude in the first place? And I think the, 
The reason it's important to study an emotion like gratitude is that feeling grateful is associated with a bunch of other positive outcomes. And at least to me, one of the most intriguing of those is a sort of link between gratitude and what's sometimes referred to as pro-social behavior, other-oriented behavior. And so we found that, that sort of the gratitude that people feel for their experiences in experiments, when we have people think about their experiences or think about their possessions, they actually end up being more generous to other people. They treat others better when they've reflected on their uh, experiential purchases than when they've reflected on their material purchases. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there, there's been quite a bit of research on pro-social spending and the relation it has with our levels of happiness. Isn't that right? Yeah, so th there's other great work by um, researchers like Liz Dunn and Mike Norton and Laura Acknan on sort of the benefits of pro-social versus personal spending, so spending money on other people rather than spending money on yourself. The research that we've been talking about today on experiential consumption is really about purchases you make for yourself. But what I think is interesting about these results following from the gratitude that people feel is that the social benefits of experiences that we've been talking about, they seem to apply not just to the sort of the consumers of those purchases themselves, although there are benefits to oneself when they buy experiences, but they can actually extend outwards to others as well. So it's not just the person that's making these purchases that benefits from, from the experience, but also the feelings that you have when you're reflecting on these experiences can lead to you passing additional benefits on to other folks that are in your, in your world as well. Oh, super interesting. So am I hearing this correctly, that by spending our money on experiential consumptions, the overall social value may increase? Like the social value that others are experiencing might increase? Yeah, so it's definitely a possibility that our data suggests. I don't want to play it up too much. And so maybe the best way to describe where that claim is coming from is the type of experiment that, that we've done to test this idea. And so one way to test this is by having participants play a game where they're given some money. So in this game that we used in one of our experiments, in the role of what's called the decider, they're just asked to allocate some money between themselves and someone else. This is someone who they would they're never going to meet. They can do this in any way that they want. So they could keep all the money for themselves or they could give some portion away to this other person. And what we do is we have people sort of before they're put in this situation, they reflect on either their significant material purchases or their significant experiential purchases. And the result is that participants in these studies tend to give more money away to this other person when they've just recently thought about experiences. And so that kind of suggests that we may be a bit more other-oriented when we think about our experiential purchases. When we think about our material purchases, we may end up being a bit more self-interested. If I think about going to a concert or going on a, a bike race with a whole bunch of other people that we drove down to, I am a lot happier or I feel better and I could see how your research shows that then compared to when I go to Home Depot and have to buy a barbecue. Um, so I think, I think that's really, really interesting. Perhaps there needs to be some policies from the community level that uh, we have to spend X amount of money on our experiences. 
I'm joking there. <laughs> I actually think that there's an interesting potential policy applications that follow from this research. So obviously, like the key takeaway for individuals living their lives is that it might be a, a wise move to shift some of your spending, some of your investments away from material consumption and towards experiential consumption if you're looking to be happier. But if it's a good idea for individuals to do this, what stands to reason, although probably is worth further investigation, that communities and governments can kind of try to encourage experiential pursuits. And so to the extent that society cares about how happy people are, governments care about how happy citizens are, you can think about how policies might steer people towards experiential consumption that promotes well-being. So you can't, I wouldn't get as much benefit from my bicycle if I didn't live in a place like Austin that was investing in its bike trails. So there really is a new bike trail that opened up by my house. And so the local government kind of enabled an experience that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Similarly, you can think about going for hikes or it's 100 degrees every day here in Austin. And so there's a bunch of sort of swimming holes around that people cool off in. Uh, that's really valuable and provides opportunities for experiences with other people. Taking in a show uh, often involves some specific infrastructure as well. So performance spaces, outdoor concerts, even just like funding, you know, stuff as basic as funding for the arts. Those are all things that might make people a bit more likely to partake in experiential consumption. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think about my own city, Edmonton. We have a nice river and our city has done a really good job investing in trails whether it's for cycling or walking in the summertime here, the outdoor pools are free for kids. Yeah, I, I said that as a joke, but, but you're absolutely correct here how policymakers can use this information to really help promote experiential consumption. Here in Austin, so we have a, much like the CBC in Canada, there's PBS for, for public broadcasting in, uh, here in the United States. And tonight I'm going to a free concert that Austin City Limits is putting on, um, and that's to be publicly broadcast. And I probably would have paid money for tickets to the concert, but the fact that it cost me nothing at all and I get to derive some satisfaction from going to it, that just makes it easier for people, perhaps people that might not have the means to otherwise go engage in some of these experiences to derive some of the satisfaction that experiential consumption tends to provide. Yeah, wow. What a great experience to go to one of those recordings. I guess I, I didn't really talk about this at the start where, of course, we all need X amount of food, shelter, security to feel um, safe and our basic necessities are taken care of. So lots of this conversation is around that discretionary income or as we talked about earlier is are we spending our money on some material things that perhaps we can change? So I just want to acknowledge that we're talking about the expenditures beyond those basic needs. And for some, that's not an option. So certainly acknowledge that this conversation is for not everyone. And hopefully one day that this could be a conversation for everyone. Yeah, it is important to, to make clear that this is about discretionary spending. So it's extra money that you have. If you're you trying to use your money to advance your happiness, once you've met these basic needs, like shelter and uh, and things like that. 
how might you invest it? And so that's what this research is speaking to. That said, what we were just discussing, you can think about ways. And so these results are not necessarily going to apply to folks who are having difficulty even meeting some of those basic needs, um, perhaps at a lower um, income uh, level. And so that's when I think it might be useful for communities to try to provide experiences to people that wouldn't otherwise um, be able to engage in them. You mentioned the the barbecue at Home Depot. Uh, if there's grill, you know, often at public beaches, there's grills there for people and you can have, you know, a big family reunion at a public space uh, with a grill that you didn't have to buy. And so that's one way to provide people with experiences and allow for these memories uh, that become stories that ultimately provide us uh, with some happiness. You're making me think about our city again. We have so many open park spaces with grills and barbecues. And on the weekend, you'll see the numerous of families with 20, 40 people in around there enjoying the summertime. So lots of application from a, a policy level with the work you're doing. I have one last question that I ask everybody. And this question First, I need to know, because I actually don't know. Do you have any kids? I do not have children. Okay, that's no. okay. This question can easily be adapted because it's not really about the kids. But let's imagine that you're at end of life, whatever age that is, you're that old. And you're sitting on a front porch looking out at somewhere that brings you peace and ease. Could be in Austin, could be anywhere. And you decide to write a letter to whomever about what you learned on how to have a happy and healthy relationship with money, what would be a key theme to that letter? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think the theme would be social connection. So humans are a social species. And so when it comes to what's going to make us happy, whether it, when this relates to the pro-social spending stuff that you were talking about, it relates to the experiential spending stuff that we've been talking about for the past hour or so. The thing that we really know as a scientific community about happiness is that positive connections with other people are essential to our well-being. In fact, they're important for our mental health as well as our physical health. There's lots of talk these days about problems like loneliness, for example. All of these recommendations that people have about spending money when it comes to feeling happier, I think many of them can boil down to how do we advance our relationships with other people? And if we can use our money to promote these connections with others, then we probably will feel a bit better about our lives. Well, Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your depth of knowledge on a really important idea of how can we spend our money to feel more happiness in our lives. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If people are interested in your research, your work, I know you have your website that we'll put in the show notes, but is there anywhere else you'd like to point them towards? You alluded to my internet presence <laughs> and I actually don't have a huge internet presence uh, because <laughs> I like to spend my time with other people rather than uh, by myself. And so I think the website can point them in directions for useful resources, hopefully. But yeah, thanks also so much for having me. This was, it was a fun conversation as you, uh, as you promised. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed reading your website. It just the tone that you have is you can find me here or here or here, maybe on the radio. 
And I got the idea that you like to spend your time with people and not uh, the internet. <laughs> yeah, there's more to life than uh, passively scrolling through feeds, especially I think anyone that studies well-being is, is probably very aware of that. Well, I hope you enjoy that, that recording tonight, the, the, con- the recording of the concert tonight. And thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Yeah, I, I fully expect that I will. And that'll be a story that I tell other people about afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening this week. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed this podcast. If that's the case, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews definitely help. Thanks again and have yourself a great week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sea